Amen. Good morning. Who's excited to be here today? Amen. I knew I should have pre-recorded the sermon because I think I lost my voice singing, but I will do my best. <clears throat> I will do my best. I just appreciate the prayer that Ryan prayed, and uh, I just want to build on that a little bit, and uh, so let's pray. Jesus, uh, you are worthy of all our praise, and uh, I thank you so much, Lord, that you came, and we're entering the season now where we recognize your birth, and uh, Lord Jesus, the greatest gift that we have been given is something that is so easy to be distracted from during this busy season. Lord, we take time this morning to recognize and acknowledge that you are the reason we have hope. You are the reason we have joy. You are the reason that we are able to live our lives with meaning. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we are gathered here to hear you speak, I pray that we would hear your voice this morning. Lord, uh, just like uh, we read about in Ezekiel recently, Lord, I ask actually that you would muzzle anything in me that you do not want to say. And I pray that you would open and release that which your Holy Spirit is speaking this morning. And Lord, that our hearts would be tender and soft to your voice, and that the fear of the Lord would be in this place and would cause us to live out what you are speaking to us today. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. And all of God's people said, amen. Recently, we have been having some tremendous uh, messages in our church. I just so appreciate the last couple of uh, dirty coveralls deals that Delan has had up here. And uh, it's so good to know the truth that we are not just meant to be saved and, and left standing here in, in our underwear or a little better. We're actually meant to be taken on and putting on what God has died to give us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, uh, and I really appreciate uh, Steve's message from a while back about being intentional. And I just really want to build on a very common truth that we've been hearing for a while today morning, but it has just been strong on my heart uh, today and this week as I've prepared to, uh, to really focus intentionally on, uh, on something that we really all know to be true. And uh, I think the Lord gave me this really, really wacky idea this week but I actually think the truth of what we're talking about today is very well illustrated with a man by the name of Crocodile Dundee. Who's heard of this man? Who has heard of this man? This guy is, is a little bit out there, but I'm going to ask Riley, and we're going to hope that there's no, uh, no ad in place here first before this video, but we're going to take a look at this scene here. If you want to pause it a sec, Riley. I just want to just set the scene here a little bit. So, so Mick and Sue, they're coming back from what we can assume is a day. That's been so many years, I actually can't remember what happened before this. But just watch what happens in this and uh, play the video. <clears throat> Should have just let it play, because now there's going to be an ad. Oh no, here we go. Buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. <laughs> That's a knife. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to mute it here for a second for the sake of a profanity. All right. 
Just kids having fun. There you go. You're Just right. kids having fun. Everybody turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You are probably wondering, how in the world can I come back from that? But we are going to look at an amazing scriptural truth and, uh, and I, my hope here is, uh, I'm, I'm not hoping just for emotionalism, but I'm hoping we're hollering by the time this is done, because this is good stuff. Ephesians chapter 6, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on how much armor? The whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Therefore, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now I want to turn back quickly to verse 10 here. And I want to, I'm going to copy a little bit of something Deland did here the last couple of Sundays, but I want us to read what's in yellow. Finally, my brethren, be... Strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. What does that statement imply? Think think about that. There is an option, okay. But what that statement implies is that apart from the strength of the Lord and His might, we are weak. We are weak. Apart from God's strength, we are weak. And that is a very important truth to understand. Because without the power of God in us, we actually have very little to fight with. We are weak. Next verse. Put on... You guys are supposed to read the yellow. Remember that? Okay. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. When we put armor on, when do we usually do that? For battle. That is correct. We put on armor. We don't go put on armor to go shopping at the mall. We put on armor when we are going to enter a battle. Now, let's just say that I'm walking around going through my day, and I'm minding my own business. I went to work, and I dropped the kids off at volleyball, and I'm going home for supper, and I'm on my way back, and all of a sudden, the devil jumps out of nowhere, and he says, I'm here to do battle. And, and I'm standing here, and I'm like, well, what, what, what have I got to do, defend myself against? And I want to ask the question. No, no, you're, you got your sword on me here, devil. Now, now what we've got to understand, guys, is that we've got to have the whole armor on. Because I can have the belt of truth on, and I can have this breastplate of righteousness on, and I've got the shoes of the gospel on, and I've got, uh, and I've got my faith shield ready to go, and I'm saved, so I got my helmet on. But what am I missing? If I do not have a sword, I'm not going to be able to fight this guy. But you know what the truth is? The truth is if I don't have much, this is what I got. And here's the devil standing with this massive sword, and I'm going to be like, how long am I going to last with just this? 
this little letter opener thing. We call this the Reepicheep sword at our place. Those of you who seen Narnia, the little mouse with the little sword, this is what this is. This isn't worth a whole lot when the devil's got that on me, is it? And you know what? You can have all the defense in the world on, but eventually, if you've got nothing to go with on offense, eventually you're going to succumb to the battle. Are you not? You can stand there behind your shield all day long, but if you've got nothing to go on the offense with, this is what this is going to look like. And eventually, I'm going to, I'm going to lose. Eventually, I am going to succumb to the devil's attack. Will I not? Okay, devil, you can go sit down. I'm going to need you later again. All right. The problem is that what is the sword again, according to Ephesians 6? What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And the challenge, the problem that we have in today's world is one often of two things. The problem is that many Christians today have either not bothered to read much of God's Word, so they don't know it well or at all. That's one problem. Or they have not read the Bible with a desire for God to transform them into the likeness of Christ through its power, that what are we left holding? A couple of memory verses maybe that we learned at camp as a kid or in Sunday school, and we have no power. Because we are not, uh, we are not aware of the might in God that we have. I came across an incredible story recently, and it begs to ask the question, what kind of a battle are we in? We live in a land of peace. What kind of battle could we possibly be in? And I want to read a story for you from China, 1993. This is uh, told by a lady named Nancy. I knew it was a divine appointment. I should meet the man they called the greatest living martyr of China, Nancy explained. We had communication before I left, and I told him I was going to bring Bibles to his church. On the day I was supposed to meet with him, we were arrested, and we got caught with the Bibles. Because we were Americans, we only got a little wrist slap, but they took our Bibles and assigned armed guards to follow us wherever we went in China. When I got back to my hotel, in my mailbox was this little rice paper. Written on the paper was, Dear Nancy, the whole church is waiting for you to arrive with the Bibles. Of course, I knew I was not going to be able to do that. If I had been caught even going to his house, he would be arrested. Traveling with us was a native Chinese man who had been riding in a different train car when we were arrested. And when we were arrested, he had tossed his bags of Bibles out the window. He went back and got them later, and that night, a strategy came to me to take those three bags four blocks down and put them in storage at another hotel. Like a spy on a mission, she moved the books in the dead of night. Nancy would spend ten more days touring China, but with the government guards always watching, she had no opportunity to deliver the Bibles. On the group's final night in this ancient nation, they decided to tour a slum in Shanghai. That is where they lost their tails. With no one following, Nancy hurried back to retrieve the stored Bibles. She grabbed two of the 70-pound backpacks and flagged down a rickshaw driver and gave him the address and climbed in. It took two and a half hours to find the man's house, she recalled. The bottom floor of this house was a police observatory. They were monitoring this man. On the police officer's door was a sign written in seven languages. 
It is against the law in the People's Republic of China for anyone to enter these premises for the purpose of worshiping Jesus Christ. Nancy was fortunate. No one was at the office at the time. More than a little scared, she opened a small door leading to the place assigned for her meeting and was faced with a narrow stairway that seemed to go on forever. Dragging the heavy book packs behind her, she began her long, difficult climb. I got to the second floor, but no one was there. I began to pray, but no one came. I was here to deliver these Bibles. That's why I came. This was my assignment. I began to cry because I was going to have to leave China and never know if these books got into the hands of the people to whom they were intended. I was sitting sobbing and noticed a ladder leading up to the attic. So I climbed it, and there was nothing in the room but tree stumps nailed to the floor with two-by-eights laying across them. And I now knew this was the place I was supposed to be. Nancy waited for more than three hours on one of those homemade pews, but no one came. Realizing she had to get back to the hotel to prepare to leave China, she stood up. Then she heard what sounded like a broomstick hitting the floor. A wave of fear rushed down her spine as she turned toward the noise. And it was then that she noticed a false wall leading to a hallway. I didn't know what to expect. Out from behind the wall came this little old lady. Her eyes had been burned out with hot pokers and her ears cut off because she had dared to share the gospel. She looked at least 100 years old and couldn't have weighed 80 pounds. She appeared to be listening through that hole where her ear had once been, as if she might have thought I left. Hello, Nancy called out. The woman, overcome with emotion, cried out, American, and started jumping up and down. Suddenly the room's shutters pulled back and children poured in from off the roof. I looked around and was surrounded by kids whose parents had been taken the night before in a raid on the church. When they heard me coming up the stairway with my heavy book bags, they thought I was the police. They had been waiting for me to leave, and now they came in and were singing and dancing, and it was such an awesome and beautiful moment. Then the woman grabbed my hand and pulled me away from the children and behind the false wall. Nancy now found herself in a narrow hallway barely two feet wide. At the end of that hall was a bookshelf. On that shelf were 89 copies of the New Testament. Nancy would discover that each had been hand-copied by one of the church's children. They had added one page per day for years. As Nancy studied one of the Bibles, the tiny woman put her shoulder to the bookcase and she shoved it out of the way. There in a five and a half feet long by three and a half feet high room, lying flat on his face on the floor, was the man she had come to meet, and he was praying. He had been in that room for 10 days, praying that I would find a way. 10 days! He had been in that room, praying that I would find a way to get this little church, those Bibles, Nancy explained. When he saw me, he sat up and crawled out. Though there was little light in the hall, his face was so illuminated and bright, it was almost blinding. After he told me he had been praying for my visit, I asked him what I could do for him to make his life easier. This beautiful smile came over his face as he said, and I want you to catch what he says. As he said, the devil tempts the body of Christ in two ways. One is with intense persecution. The other is with abject apathy. I wouldn't trade one lash on my back or one day in any day of the 28 years I've been in prison for all of the money in America. 
You have done what needs to be done for me already. You have prayed and you have come. At that moment, I looked straight into his eyes and knew I was seeing God. And my life's never been the same. Friends, we are not fighting intense persecution. We are fighting a battle of abject apathy in North America. Amen, anybody? We are fighting abject apathy in our churches, in this church, in our area churches. We are fighting against apathy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 5. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. I want you to ask yourself for a second, what kind of days Paul is living in? Is he living at the Hilton? (laughs) He is not living the easiest of lives. He goes through in that one passage of Scripture all these things that have happened to him, and he is not living a comfortable life. And these guys, the Romans, are hunting Christians down and killing them. And he says, yeah, but in in the last days, it's going to be difficult. We ever think about that? I'd say it's difficult right where they are. But he says in the last days, it's going to be difficult. And look how he describes those difficult last days. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. I would like to stand before you this morning and tell you that those things, those qualities, describe only people outside the church. But you and I both know that there, we have all met people where a lot of those qualities describe people in the church. And that is disgraceful, is it not? That is disgraceful that we would come to church, that people in North America would come to church every Sunday putting on a godly smile on their face and during the week they are living as if they have not met the living God who could change their lives. That is disgraceful. And those are the difficult days that Paul says are coming in the end. I'd say they're here. Would you not? They are here. Look what it says in Romans chapter 13. Remember, you're supposed to read what's in yellow. This is a little hint. This is all the more urgent. I heard like five of you. This is all the more urgent. Now I want to ask you, when you hear the word urgent, what do you hear? What do you think of? I'll tell you, there's a verse in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 5. And the gazelle knows the thing or two about being urgent. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. We're going to watch a little video here right now that shows us what being urgent looks like. I hope. Here we go. This is urgency, people. Uh Uh-oh. Look at that gazelle. Is he lying over? 
Look at him go. That, my friends, is a picture of urgency. Would you and I agree that the gazelle knows a thing or two about urgency? That cheetah coming after him, he's not lying down and giving. He's going, right? He outran the cheetah. That's amazing. That is urgency. Flee like that, the proverb says. Get yourself free like the gazelle. Put up that verse from Romans again here. Let's, let's read that now that we've got a fresh picture here of what urgency looks like. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Oh, my bad. There we go. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity or immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling and jealousy. I've dealt with that this week in my home. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. That urgency Paul is talking about is not talking about some big battle off across the other seas. That urgency is talking about apathy and waking up. Amen? Waking up. It's time to wake up. I could go on and on about stats. I'm going to give you two. There, there's lots of these. And you've got to be a little careful what you get because some of them I don't think are completely accurate. But uh, Tom Bissett in 1997 asked a bunch of people why Christian kids leave the faith. And his findings in his very early study, he identified four prominent reasons. Those kids left because they had trouble and troubling and unanswered questions about their faith. They left because their faith was not working for them. They left because they allowed other things to take priority. And they left because they never personally owned their faith. T.C. Pinckney, in his remarks to the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee in 2001, found data from the Southern Baptist Convention indicates that they are currently losing 70 to 88% of their youth after their freshman year in college. 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. 70. Seven, zero. That means because I have three children, two, four of them, three of them. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. I have four children. That means three of them are no longer going to be in the church at the time they're 20 years old. That is a startling stat. And why is it that children are this exodus is happening of children from the church? I am convinced it is because of apathy. Because they have not seen the power of God lived out in their homes by their parents. And so there's what's the reason to follow this gospel that you tell me about? I don't see any difference. And so they leave the church. But there's also, I think, another reason, and that is that our culture is constantly pulling 
at our young people. It's pulling at us as adults too, but it's pulling hard at our young people. And I want to focus today on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I want us to look at four ways that reading our Bibles daily is going to do for us. I want to look at four. There are a lot of things, but I want to look specifically at four things that I feel are vital in this battle against apathy. The first one is it draws our minds back continually to God's revealed character, which is truth. Everybody say that, which is truth. Which, it is truth. I heard years ago, and some of you have heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. I heard years ago a pastor make a statement in a sermon where he said, there are a lot of Christians running around that say, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. That is a completely incorrect theological statement. 100% incorrect. You know why? Because God's word says it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, does nothing to alter the truth of what God's word says. God's word is truth, and what he has revealed in his word is truth. Whether you and I believe it or not is irrelevant as far as truth is concerned. It is very relevant for how we are going to live our lives and where we will spend eternity, but it is irrelevant when it comes to determining truth. And those people that are coming to our Bible study, we're looking at, at the Truth Project on Friday nights, and we're looking at what this whole aspect of truth, what this reality of truth actually is. John 18, 36 to 37 says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause... I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When we think about witnessing, as Jesus tells us, some translations say testify. What are we talking about? What do we think of? Come on, I'm disappointed in my Bible study people. You should know this. What are we thinking of? Okay, I'll help you. We're thinking of a courtroom. We're thinking about a trial. We are thinking about people testifying as to what the truth is. And the Bible says that Jesus came for that purpose, to tell us, to testify, to bear witness to what is truth. Man, I love that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You know, recently this thought came to me. What if I started viewing Scripture, the Bible, as something that God is saying to me rather than what he has already said? To me? What if I read it every day with the idea that today when I read what this book has to tell me, I am going to discover new things about what God is telling me? Would that change our enthusiasm for reading it? I think it would. I was thinking the other day, there's some people that are a little bit cautious in our circles about this whole idea about hearing God's voice. And I was thinking, what if I went up to this poor guy and I, and I gave him some money and I told my buddy, I said, hey, God told me to give him that money. And the guy's like, whoa, whoa, hang on here. God's what? God told you what? And I go, well, yeah, he, he, he told me to help the poor. 
It, does, it doesn't have to get all weird and X-Files-ish. God told me to help the poor. He told me. What if I, what if I resist temptation? Because, and then I say, hey, God told me to resist temptation. Yes, God told you what? He told me. This morning when I read, he said to me, resist temptation. I think it would transform the way we do devotions if we would actually ask ourselves with every line we read, what is God saying? Not what has he said. What's he saying? Mm, I love it. 1 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days, in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. If we do not see, my friends, the Jesus of the Bible, we will believe a lie. And you and I know that Jesus can, only Jesus, the name of Jesus can save us. But if we're not worshiping Jesus as the Bible describes him, how do we know that we're not worshiping an idol that we've just called Jesus? We don't know that. We've got to read the Bible so we know that the Jesus we're worshiping is the truth. Amen? We've got to know what the truth is because it doesn't change based on what you and I want it to be. It's been established. We simply have the call to find out what it is and then conform our lives to it. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we read the Bible every day, we are considering Jesus. Amen? It calls us back to what the example Jesus has set. And he's carrying that cross, and he's getting whipped, and he is almost dead. And all he can see is the finish line where he knows if I get through this and obey God to completion, there are going to be multitudes of people that are going to be saved in my name because of what I've done. And so he just looked at the finish line. And that's what he calls us to do too, so that we will not grow weary in this day and age. Second thing that reading the Bible daily, every day, reading God's Word does for us, it gives us daily strength. I wish I had time to develop all this, really, but I'm going to try and just whip through some scripture here really quick to try and give us a picture of what Jesus is talking about here when he says that he is the bread from heaven. In John chapter 6, it says, we're going to skip some, we're not going to read all 44 verses just to get, there you go. One of the following, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. We're talking about, we're just done the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, and this crowd has just finished eating all that bread, and now they're coming after him again. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. 
Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you did not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Don't murmur among yourselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am, here he says it again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. That describes to a T, so many Christians in North America today who get fed by some miraculous provision from God. They experience something in life that's really, truly wonderful, but then when they're told, you got to come back to me every day and eat my flesh and drink my blood, they're like, I'm not interested in that. That sounds like work. I just want the blessing. What is he talking about here? Have we ever considered this? I mean, this is, this is a basic thing. All of us, I'm sure, have considered this at, once, at one time or another. But in Numbers chapter, I mean, sorry, in... in uh, Exodus chapter 16, this is when the bread from heaven came down that Jesus is talking about here. And very quickly to summarize, this bread was consisting of these flakes of this honey tasting stuff that came down and it was there every day and they went and gathered it. But if you left it until the morning, what happened? It rotted and it was worthless. That's the bread Jesus is talking about. You need me daily to sustain yourself. Because if you try and go tomorrow on today's revelation, 
It's old. You got to go every day on the fresh revelation of Jesus Christ because it feeds us. And there's a lot of us sometimes in North America you see that come to church on Sundays and their Bible sits dusty the rest of the week because they just fed up and got full and the rest of the week there's nothing. We need every day to be feeding on the bread of life. I think it's actually very cool because the, the, even Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem. That means house of bread. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Jesus was born there, came from there. How about the water? In John 7, 37-39, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When we look back in the Old Testament, we see in Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 20, two instances where there was water that came out of the rock. That rock represents Jesus Christ. And the first time Moses was told he was supposed to strike the rock, and he did, and water come flowing out. The second time he was supposed to speak to the rock, and what did he do? Struck it again, and that actually was the the action that, that God actually told Moses, you can't go into the promised land because you struck it instead of spoke to it. That seems harsh. Doesn't it? That seems really harsh, but what does that symbolize? I'm not sure you could read probably all kinds of things into that, but this is what I believe. I believe that the first time the rock was struck, that represents Jesus getting struck at the cross, and he died, and water came forth because he died. The second time, when Moses was told to speak to the rock, that represents the water that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we now no longer need to get violent with that. We just simply need to ask and speak, and the living water comes flowing out. Amen? We just simply need to seek the Spirit and ask. And He's there with living water. Third thing that reading God's Word does for us, and this one is key. The land mentioned a prayer request about a church in Oshawa who is under tremendous fire because of how they have handled biblically sin in the church. Reading God's word for us reveals the wolves in the church. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and 20 says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. They come into the church and they look like everybody else, but really they're wolves inside. They're in the church. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. 2 Peter, chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many, not just a few, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. By covetousness, you know what that really means, I think? By, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. That means that there's unbelievers out there that were meant to be saved, and they are blaspheming God by what they see in people who claim to be Christians. That's something we see every day around us too. 
By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Acts chapter 20. This is something really cool. I want us to see this. From Miletus, he sent to who? To Ephesus, and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He is speaking to the Ephesian church. The passage that we read in Ephesians 6, right at the beginning of the sermon, about equipping ourselves with the armor of God, is written to the Ephesian church. Everyone turn to Revelation chapter 2. Well, I've got it up here actually too, for those that don't have a Bible or whatever. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, overcomes what? Apathy. Leaving your first love. He who overcomes apathy, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That is amazing that he has written all this scripture to us that describe the spiritual battle, and it is for a church who is struggling with apathy. That is amazing. Last point, very quickly, and then we're going to close. The fourth thing, it equips us to fight. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. 2 Corinthians 10.4-5, We use God's mighty weapons and not worldly weapons to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. 
God's word is powerful. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Huh? All you guys that are into all that Marvel and Avenger and all that nonsense, you know what, that, yeah, hammers that break rocks are strong. Hey, Thor's hammer can do that. But anyway, God's word has power to defeat all things the enemy attacks us with. Amen? So, the devil comes along. And I'm just doing my day. And here he comes. And he says what? I've come to do battle. battle, But now guess what? I've been reading my Bible. And I'm mighty because of what God's word says. So am I picking up this little thing? No, no. That thing I'm throwing out. This is what I got now. Huh? If you're holding this, do you think you're going to be scared anymore? Who's going to be scared? That guy right there. You remember the, the, the flick from uh, Crocodile Dundee, my buddy there? He showed no fear when that guy pulled that little pocket knife out on him. Why? Because he knew he had a bigger one. He had a bigger one. And those guys, and, and you know what I love about it right after? All, the, the guy, the ringleader there who we'll say is the devil, and all his cronies, his hoodlums that are with him, they all go running. Amen? They all, yeah, thanks for running. Get out of here. <laughs> they all go running. Because my sword is mighty. And they are afraid. They are afraid. I love that. And you know what I love? Right after they're gone, Crocodile says, eh, that's just kids having fun. That's just what the devil does, folks. The devil coming to attack us, to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Look at this. Stay, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He's prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know what? That's just what the devil does. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be surprised. That's just what he does. Thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So my question for you this morning, which sword are you holding? <laughs> that dude over there is holding the He could probably hardly pick this thing up. Which sword, my friends, are you holding? When the devil comes to attack, when the devil tempts us to be apathetic toward the things of the Lord, apathetic toward the lost who are perishing for eternity, when we look at the situations and trials and struggles that we go through, how how do we react? Which sword do you want to hold? My friends, pick up This incredible gift that we've been giving every day. This is this. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your amazing word. Forgive us for how we neglect it. Forgive us when we do not make time to read your word. Forgive us when we read it and do not read it with a desire to be conformed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray 
that you would stir within us a fresh hunger, a fresh fire to know you and to know your word. In Jesus' name, amen.